0: You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. Hi, Siobhan here. Just a warning, we briefly touch on prenatal anxiety and suicidal thoughts in this episode, and there is occasional coarse language, so please feel free to skip this episode if that's distressing for you. When you become a mother, many things change, which really shouldn't have been a big surprise. And yet for me, it was. So many new experiences, so many decisions to make and things to learn. It wasn't until I left the toddler years behind me and emerged from the fog of them that I realized that time had been full of judgment. Women are judged on how they birth their babies how they feed them and how they choose to raise them. Everyone seemed to have an opinion on what was right for me as a mother. Clementine Ford is an author and feminist so I thought she might be able to help me untangle my thoughts on this and if that can't be done to share hers. Hi Clem, how are you?
1: Hi Siobhan, it's so nice to be back with you.
0: I suppose the Main issue that brings this up for me is the discussion around caesareans or C-sections. So I understand um, on a practical level that vaginal birth is healthier for both baby and mother. But the thing that messes with my head is that it is still the mother's body, that it feels like regardless of whether she's having a caesarean because it's for safety reasons, because her baby cannot be born vaginally, or if it's cosmetic reasons, because she personally doesn't want to have surgery, that is her choice to make without judgment. But I'm conflicted because I do understand the safety reasons for saying women should have a vaginal birth. What do you think of that situation?
1: I mean, yes, look, we know that vaginal births provide a bacteria to the baby as they're being born that is, you know, beneficial. But I would question the statement that vaginal births is healthier for the mother because I don't think that that's always true. In fact, often vaginal births result in physical injury for the mother um, or for the birth parent, I should say. So, and we can't, we can't know what the outcome of a birth will be. I mean, I had a vaginal birth and I Suffered a physical injury. And I I went into my birthing really determined that I was going to birth vaginally because I partly didn't want to have major abdominal surgery. And that's the other thing, as well, is that caesareans, I mean, there's so much sexism and misogyny that permeates this conversation that the idea that women who have or parents who have caesareans are somehow too posh to push. I hate that phrase, too posh to push you know, whether or not they've had, they've chosen to have an elective cesarean or not, who knows what the reason that they might've chosen an elective cesarean might be. Maybe, maybe it's extreme anxiety about having a vaginal birth. Maybe they know someone who suffered a physical injury and they want to avoid that. Whatever reason it is, how people birth is nobody else's business. As you say, it's the person's body and they're, they're the ones who get to choose, but also people need to be able to weigh up whether or not they want to be trying to push for three hours to get a baby out because they've got it into their head as I did as I'd kind of become susceptible to that a vaginal birth meant something more about me about how I could birth you know and and it's really interesting because logically I reject all of that but I was still emotionally so susceptible to this idea and also for me as well because I had such a terrible pregnancy I had really really bad prenatal anxiety. And it was really, really bad. And uh, if I could just like put a little content note on here for your listeners, or I assume you'll have one at the start of the episode, but I was suicidal at points of my pregnancy because the anxiety was that terrible. So I felt like there was a sort of, I had this sense that at least I could do the birth properly. The pregnancy had been so bad, but at least me with my wide hips and my <laughs> you know, mountain climbing frame I thought, oh, I'll just drop this baby out of me, you know, my, my body's built for birthing. And I was so crushed to realise that that wasn't the case. And, you know, I was induced because um, I, I went to 42 weeks and they were like, well, we need to get this baby out of you because the risk of stillbirth." I mean, they're just the things that they say to you terrify you in the hospital. And so I agreed to be induced and actually by the time the placenta came out of me it it would only just start to degrade a little bit so I probably could have gone for a few more days and waited to see if I could have uh, you know had a um, spontaneous labor and again we should we need to be really careful about how we talk about birth you know words like natural and natural birth as opposed to a cesarean no we say vaginal birth as opposed to cesarean because all of these things contribute to Firstly, in, in individual parents, they contribute to a sense of failure that is false. You know, you shouldn't feel like you failed based on how you've birthed your baby, and potentially contribute to the risk of postnatal depression and anxiety afterwards if you do sense that, that sort of false um, idea of failure. But also, they contribute to the decisions that we make in the moment. It may have been better for me, ultimately, to have said and insisted when I was, you know, seven hours into, a, into an induction and I still had yet to have the epidural and I was in such torturous pain and I'd only dilated half a centimetre, it may have been better at that point for me to say, I want a cesarean right now so that I didn't then get to 16 hours in, 18 hours in and have them say, well, well, you've been, you've been on the drugs for so long now that we've, you can only have an hour to push this baby out. And then me pushed the baby out. The baby came out in distress, had to be, you know, rushed to the recess table. I hemorrhaged and also had, you know, a third degree tear and damaged my pelvic floor. But I then had to suffer through for the next at least eight, eight months. I was wearing, you know, ten incontinence pads for the next eight months and it was all, it felt, you know, impossible to talk about. It was so much shame. No one wants to talk about, no one wants to say, well, I'm like leaking piss out of me, mm. you know, while you're taking care of a newborn baby and trying just to hold it all together. Maybe mm. it would have been better for me just to have a cesarean. So the idea that what is safe for a parent, you know, well, mm. I would argue that what was safer for me and for my baby actually ultimately would have been for me to not have a body in distress.
0: Yeah. Following on from that, you mentioned that um, how you feel about the birth can affect what comes after. And breastfeeding is a huge area, again, Mm -hmm. where I feel we're told that breast is best so often that that phrase makes women feel that if breast is best and I'm not giving them the breast, then I'm doing something that's harmful to my baby. In the West, a baby is not going to be harmed by having formula there's no reason why a baby can't thrive on formula should that also be a choice that women can just make like i don't want to breastfeed i'm going to formula feed and, of and have no judgement around that
1: i mean everything that within reason of course like women shouldn't have the choice to leave their kids in cars obviously but within you know when we know formula doesn't harm a baby everything should be a choice and it's no one else's business. And it's so interesting that we really provide absolutely no tangible, practical, respectful support for women after they've given birth. We just sort of like shut them out of the hospital and say, okay, go home, figure it out. You know, no one comes around to emotionally check in on you. You get your midwife, your, your visit from your midwife, but no one's coming in once a week to be a night nanny for you at least just once a week so that you can have a night's sleep. Instead, you were told to just basically, like, suck it up, suck it up and get on with it. This is what you wanted. You wanted to do this. And then every choice that you make is also completely infantilized, or you are completely infantilized by every choice that you make. So on the one hand, you're told, well, you're grown up enough to look after the baby. And on the other hand, you're told everything you do is wrong because you're just a silly little girl. I mean, the thing, the funny thing about the, the formula is I was – I almost said I was lucky enough, but like, why, why, is, why, do, why do I still feel the impulse to say lucky enough? I didn't have a problem with breastfeeding and I was lucky enough that I liked breastfeeding because a lot of people breastfeed and hate it, but they still feel compelled by this sort of narrative that they have to do it. I was fortunate that I enjoyed doing it and it, and it came quite easy to me. And I have to interrogate what it is that, in, in the same way that I thought I was going to have, I was going to nail birthing, and I didn't. And that made me feel like less of a woman. What is it about being able to breastfeed easily that made me feel proud? Like, why? It's just a physical thing that I happened to be able to do. It's not a moral judgment, but, but we are so conditioned to apply moral um, moral success or failure to whether or not we can do these things. that you know we really have to kind of reject that in ourselves even though the impulse is there to feel those things and the funny thing about it is as well is that I was so kind of even though logically I was like there's nothing wrong with formula I was a formula fed baby my mother never breastfed me because she couldn't she tried and she couldn't and I was fed on formula and I again feel like I'm I turned out okay (laughs) Um, I'm strong I'm thriving I'm you know I was a a bouncy body baby and I've, I've rarely been sick my whole life. So all of this kind of like, well, it sets you up. It's arbitrary. You know, yes, you can say that some things may help, but, but whatever, you know, the best thing that a baby can be is fed, I think, and loved and taken care of. So why is it that knowing all of that, I was still, because I could breastfeed, I was still resistant to the idea of giving my baby formula because I felt like I would be cheating somehow and that is, it's terrible that I felt that way. Like, like parents and mothers in particular who are struggling with sleep and struggling already with the sense that they're not, doing it, they're not doing it well enough, shouldn't have to feel that way. I should have been empowered from the beginning to say to my son's dad, you're going to do the night feeds every night. You're going to do the formula feed so that I can sleep. But I, I didn't do that. I felt like I had to prove something. And it's just really messed up. And it, of course, then ends up making women who, or parents who, who either choose not to breastfeed or who hate breastfeeding or who struggle to physically do it, feel like they've somehow failed or they've missed out on something. And there is just too much judgment associated with and applied to all of the choices that women make when they're pregnant and when they're birthing and then afterwards in the care of the baby. And all of that judgment, is a really really easy way to distract from the fact that we are given no actual support.
0: Well, you were mentioning um, earlier that you know you're expected to be an adult when you bring a baby home because you're looking after it, but then the messaging is almost like, well, you you don't really know anything, and um, that really resonates with me because I feel that the safety messages that we are told about things like how we co-sleep with our babies or how we carry our babies and those sorts of things. It's almost like a there's a club, a safety message club that's being hit over your head. I co-slept with both of my eight children, but I did it safely. And it wasn't until after they were older and I was doing looking into it and doing some research that I realized that they know that something like something incredible, like 90% of parents will at some point co sleep with their baby. And yet, when my son was uh, four months old and I took him to a lactation consultant and I told her that we were co sleeping, she said, I have to tell you that your son is in the age bracket most likely to die from co sleeping, which of course terrified me. He was my second Ooh. child. She was lovely. She was a great lactation consultant, but there'd been a message from above saying, you have to tell every mother that she's going to potentially kill her child if she co-sleeps with them. At the same time that those same people knew that 90% of mothers are going to co-sleep with their child. So I was in that place where I'm thinking, well, I'm not stupid. I'm going to do it safely. I'm not going to fall asleep with him on my chest on the lounge. I'm not going to have my partner next to me who's drunk I know the messages so why do you still have to tell me that Mm. I could kill my child when this is the only like I was actually really happy before you said that like we were Mm. feeding in bed and sleeping and everything was great because I followed those safety measures and when I reflect back I think why do we have to put so much fear into women who are all most of us are trying to do the right thing by our babies and if anything we're too worried about their Mm. safety so it it was interesting that you said that in terms of how that messaging is supplied to us it Mm. just seemed really strange to me
1: it's yeah and what I'm hearing when I hear you say that as well is that I mean I co-slept as well and I co-slept because partly because my son was just he just did not want to be away from me you know And partly because it meant that I could get more sleep and a a well-slept mother is a safer mother. So you do not co-sleep because your kid is in a high risk age bracket and then your sleep is more broken. So the next day when you're out driving, you fall asleep at the wheel. You know, it's, and again, there's no suggestion here of, well, what's the solution? Who is going to come round and help me to sleep? because sleep deprivation is there's a reason why sleep deprivation is used as a torture device you know there are so many mothers in particular who are walking around completely sleep deprived and who you know one of the things that i hate the most and i wonder if this will resonate with some of your listeners is particularly if they're partnered with men is that the men sleep all night because he's got to get up and go to work the next day so it makes sense for him to to sleep all night i'm sorry he has to go to his 8 hour a day job and she has her 24-hour-a-day job that never stops he, <laughs> yes. needs the he needs to sleep. I'm sorry, he can sleep at his desk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, obviously not everyone works at a desk. If you're driving a truck or operating heavy machinery, then that's a, different, that's a different situation. But it is interesting that the care of a baby throughout the day is never seen as the kind of dangerous job that a woman would need to get sleep for. Um, I mean, I still sleep closely with my son now and he sleeps with his dad and he sleeps with me and he's five and it's lovely. You know, I love, I'm dreading the day that he comes to me. And of course, when he comes and says he wants his own bed, I'll be like, yep, let's go and get you a bed. I'm not going to be like, no, you have to stay sleeping with me. (laughs) Um, You know, Norman. um, But uh, you know, and I sleep I also sleep trained. Sleep training is another big thing. I sleep trained when he was six months old because at that point, like he co-sleeps with me now and has done for years because he actually goes to sleep. But at six months old, I was I was like hanging by a thread. The sleep deprivation was so real. He was waking up all night and feeding all night because the, the boob was right there and he could smell the milk. And I wasn't sleeping at all during the night because he was feeding. Then he wouldn't eat during the day. So it was just it was so fractious. And I wasn't being supported and helped at all by anyone. And I I sleep trained and I did Elizabeth Sloan's three-day course, where I read I read her book and I and I just did it at home. And of course, the first night was horrendous because you're sitting outside the room and hearing them cry and you feel like the worst person in the world. But actually, He did go to sleep the next night. He went to sleep pretty quickly. He cried for 20 minutes and then went to sleep at 6.30 and woke up at 6.30 the next morning. And and I was like, what is this sorcery? Why is no (laughs) one tell me about this? Um, And then, you know, we had stretches where that would be fine and then he would go through a sleep regression and then we'd have to do I say we, I would have to do it again. And the older he got, the more and more guilty I felt about it because the more, of course, he was developing a personality. And eventually, I just brought him back into the bed with me because he wasn't breastfeeding by that point. So it was was less fraud to have him just sleeping next to me. And then I was like, oh, this is so nice having my baby with me, you know. And um, and now I love cuddling up with him. And but you know, the sleep training thing when I said I was doing that—that that other women can be the most horrible people.
0: This motherhood myth that exists that you know all women are natural nurturers. There is part of me that feels that there is something deep inside me that wants to protect my children, wants to look after them. But when I had them, I didn't immediately know how to cook or match spare socks or all of those things. They didn't just happen naturally and for many women that idea of the natural nurturer that's where it really becomes difficult when you're trying to breastfeed and it's not happening or Mm. you know we're all learning when we have our kids why do you think this myth still persists that there is something innate in women that is caring that is not necessarily present in men
1: well because it's patriarchy If we make women believe that their natural role is the caregiver, not only will they be responsible for raising children who grow up to become, you know, next generation's taxpayers, but also we distract women from being fully participatory in the world that men run. And also we condition women into the idea that being a natural caregiver doesn't just mean taking care of children, but it also means taking care of men. You know, women take care of men so men can go out and take care of countries. And that's our job. And, you know, to me, obviously women aren't natural caregivers. We're just humans that have been socialised by the world. There's no, there's no genetic predisposition in women to care for things, just as there's no genetic predisposition in men to destroy things. You know, there's so many men who, who are, some women are natural caregivers and some men are natural caregivers because some humans are naturally drawn to caregiving and in insisting that this is a women's job not only do we reduce women to this one thing but we also deny men the capacity to be caregivers too you know my son I see him he's a he's a natural caregiver he is very sensitive and you know he he has a teddy that he calls he's his, he's his teddy's daddy and part of that I think is because he has A father who is very caregiving and who is very soft and gentle with him and so he's learning how to be a good caregiver and learning how to be a good dad through the work that his father models to him but you know we we reduce women to this so that we can keep them in the one role and it's so funny to me that you know, that idea of like, well, being able to put together a good school lunch, a good, healthy, balanced school lunch and making sure that they always have matching socks and all of that crap that I honestly could not care less about. And I already preemptively fear the judgment from other school mums about the lunches that I send my kid to school with <laughs> or whether or not I just send him to school with some money. To go to the canteen which of course has really healthy options available now because it's a school canteen in 2021 not 1996. <laughs> um, I'm just not interested in any of that stuff and I can't make myself be interested in it I've never been the mum who came to the park with look I've never been the mum who came to the park with snacks let alone <laughs> with good <laughs> snacks I'm always the one who, who gets there and thinks oh shit I forgot to pack food my son is fine. He is fine. And, you know, he's the big things are the ones that I think are taken care of. And the little things, it's like you and I were saying before we started recording, I don't think back on my childhood and think, oh, it was so. I mean, look, my mum, I was never sent to school with a school lunch. I was sent to school with sometimes money I pilfered out of my mum's purse because I hadn't been given any lunch money. So I, you know, I had my own kind of like messed up childhood in, in its own way. And, I mean, I'm not going to say that that's a great way to raise a kid, but the things that I remember from my childhood, it's when we all spent time together as a family. It's when we went to the beach together and and I had my parents' attention and we'd come home and we'd all be, we'd feel safe together and we'd eat takeout and sit in front of the TV. And these are some of the best memories of my childhood. It's when my family was together, we made jokes, we like laid down family traditions. So all of that kind of are they wearing matching socks? Do they have a pressed uniform? Have they had like vegetables today? I don't care about any of it because I don't think any of it really matters Mm. as long as a child feels loved and feels looked after and feels paid attention to.
0: That's such a beautiful spot to end the interview. Clementine, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Thank you, Siobhan. Sorry that I talk so
0: much. (laughs) Never apologise for that. (laughs) That's Clementine Ford. She's an author and feminist. Her latest book is called How We Love and you'll find links to it in the notes of this episode. I'm Siobhan Hunt. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please rate and review us so we can reach and help even more parents. And if you have a topic you'd like me to cover, send your email to feedplaylove.com at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.